you know, I was, let me, I can't do two things at once here, so just <laughs> hang on a second. It's going to be in the pocket, yep. All right, well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, you know, I was uh, in school many years ago, and, uh, and so because I was in school, I was working a job that was overnight. I was working a graveyard shift, and so uh, one night I was coming home from work. I'd only been working there for a couple of weeks, but I was coming home, and so it was like probably about 4.30 in the morning for me, and I was coming home and uh, needed to stop and get gas. Uh, in my car, and so I pulled over to this gas station that was uh, a few blocks away from the apartment that we lived in, and uh, pulled into this gas station and uh, was filling up, and I had this guy come up to me and say, hey, um, you know, my truck uh, is not starting, and uh, I was wondering if you could give me a jump, and so, you know, I'm, I'm there, and thinking, I, you know, I just want to get home, I'm tired, uh, I've got class in a couple of hours, and, uh, and, and yeah, I thought, you know, uh, you know, this is kind of what it's about, this is what it means to, uh, you know, to live out our faith, and so I'm going to try to help this guy, and so I said, that's fine, let me just go pay for the gas, and I'll uh, pull the car around, his truck was kind of on the edge of the gas station, uh, just kind of off to the side, and so I went and I paid and I came back out and I drove my car over to the side of the gas station and, you know, parked in front so that I could, uh, you know, give him a jump. And so I, you know, got out and popped the hood of the car and opened it up and, uh, and I walk over there and there, I told them that I didn't have jumper cables. And so they said, oh, we, you know, we have jumper cables. And I said, okay, so you know, I'm just kind of standing there, and there's two guys, and one of them is in the truck, and the other guy tells me he's getting the jumper cables, and I'm like, okay, and, and I sort of walk over, and I'm looking at the engine, and I'm like, the battery is gone, so I don't know how you're going to jump the car, and there's clearly some other things going on in the engine, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what is going on here. And, uh, and so I start asking this guy, it's like, so, so what's going on? It seems like you've got more issues than just having it jumped. And, uh, and he just kind of was rambling, but wasn't really saying a whole lot. And then all of a sudden, I realized that the guy that was in the truck got out of the truck and started to walk around the other side of the car. You know, so I'm standing on the driver's side of my car, and he's, he's walking around. And kind of in that moment, I don't know if you've ever had these moments, I realized something's wrong. Like something's, some, I've gotten myself into something. And, uh, and so I just, I'm trying to talk to this guy, and this guy's kind of starting to come around and get around behind me. And so I kind of take the step back to see what he's doing and where he's going. And right as I do that, as I just start to turn around, the guy in front of me just clocks me right in the face. And, and like the next moment, I, I'm on the ground and uh, I'm trying to kind of figure out what is going on. And in that second, uh, you know, he jumps into my car, which is running, right? Because I'm trying to give them a jump. And uh, he jumps into my car and closes the door. And, uh, and I just, I jump up and I just, as, as hard as I can, just try to smash the driver's side window in so that I can grab him and try to, I don't know what I was doing really. <laughs> and uh, I, I know that this is gonna be kind of, uh, you know, because of you know, how I look, this will be a big surprise, but I did nothing to the window, nothing. <laughs> um, so it was just such a sad attempt. And, uh, and so I, I didn't really know what to do, and, uh, but I just kind of grabbed onto the car as he's putting it in reverse. And I'm holding on to the, the mirror on the side and kind of the top of the car. And he sort of backs it up and then just takes off. And I, again, have this moment of, what, what am I doing? And so now I'm sort of being dragged along by the car as he's driving. And uh, I'm like looking at him in the car. And he's just like looking at me like, I, like the, I'm the idiot, right? Like, like. I so which I was but um and so you know he goes about a block down and uh and turns 
and, uh, and then goes up into this yard, and I look over, and I just realize that there's this massive tree coming right at me, and, uh, and so thankfully, I let go <laughs> and uh, was able to just sort of fall off of the car, and, and he took off, and, uh, and I just kind of picked myself up and walked back to the gas station and called the police and kind of went from there, but it, it was a uh, sort of very traumatic experience. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have experienced far worse. I'm not trying to overstate it, but uh, it, it was a bit of a traumatic situation uh, to go through. And so over the next weeks and months, and, and even if I'm being honest, like years of just kind of processing through that, there's so many different things that go through your mind, things that you wish you would have done differently, things that you wish you would have picked up on, uh, just different ways to respond to different things. But what was kind of interesting to me is that I think uh, one of the significant aspects that bothers me about that whole episode is this thought that I was trying to help these guys out. That my heart and my desire was to do something nice, to try to be able to help them. And yet, in that, uh, there was this, like, again, uh, you know, it's a bit overstated, right? But there was this plot <laughs> to, to kind of not just take advantage of me, uh, but, but actually to, to do me harm. I actually found out that before uh, the truck that they had gotten was stolen from somebody else, that they just walked up to it in an intersection, punched them into a face, dragged them out of their car, their truck, and took their truck. So, I mean, these guys were just you know, those guys. And, uh, but what was hard for me to be able to process was this feeling of betrayal, right? That, that somehow in that, um, I, I had thought that I'm, I'm trying to do something that is good and of value, and, and yet you, you took advantage. And, and in that, if you've, if you've been there, you know this, right? There is a deep sense of like vulnerability, there, there's a deep sense of wound there that's, that's different. It's bigger than just, you know, getting hit or having your heart, car stolen or something like that. It, it, it's actually this idea that somebody would take advantage of something that was good. And, you know, when you think about betrayal, betrayal is a tough thing. And this morning we're going to be in John chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at the story of the betrayal of Jesus specifically. But I want to sort of have us rest in the depth of this idea of betrayal. Betrayal is a gross violation of trust and can be one of the most devastating forms of pain inflicted upon a human life. The suffering of betrayal is often magnified by a sense of vulnerability and exposure. For many, the pain of betrayal is worse than physical violence, deceit, or even prejudice. Betrayal destroys the foundation of trust. And so I, I don't know if you're here this morning and maybe you've experienced betrayal in your life. Uh, maybe you have been the perpetrator, you've been the perpetrator of betraying someone else and betraying their trust. Uh, but I would guess that there's a lot of us here who have been betrayed by somebody in our life, somebody that wasn't just a stranger that you were trying to help out, but somebody that you thought had your back, somebody that you thought would never do what they ended up actually doing. And so this morning, I want to just have us think a little bit about how we maybe have been betrayed. I appreciate so much the testimony that Brad shared earlier about his dad. And I just appreciate even how he began that, right? That like Mother's Day, Father's Day can be very good, but it can also be very hard for some people. And there are some people that have really great relationships and memories of their dad. And there are some people who have really hard and bitter uh, feelings about their relationship with their dad because they've experienced betrayal. Uh, I read one time somebody was talking about uh, the jail ministry and jail, the, the people that are, many people that are in jail. And they, this one person said this, they said that the jails 
are full of young men who are victims of broken promises by their fathers. And I think that that's really can be the sad reality for a lot of people. And so again, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, I want to sort of look at this idea of betrayal. And I want to look at the ugliness of it. But I also want to look at the response of it, of course, by Jesus. Uh, To begin, let me just again give us some context. The last time that we were in John, we looked at the beginning of John chapter 13. And we looked at this very uh, well-known passage where he is washing the feet of his disciples. And John chapter 13, verse 1 says, And now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loving his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, And this is what we talked about the last time I shared in John chapter 13, was that Jesus loved to the end. And we talked about how, you know, that might mean to the end of their lives, but in a lot of ways, it is to the ends of who we are. It is to the ends of our circumstances, to the ends of our struggles, to the ends of our pain. And and so just to give some context again uh, to what's happening, let me start in verse 12, and we're going to kind of re-look at some of what we looked at last time, and then get into this betrayal that happens. Verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so he's talking about this sacrifice, this example of sacrifice that he gave to the disciples. But then it's interesting here in verse 18, he continues on and he says this, I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so Jesus, having come off of this Uh, intimate gathering with his disciples where he washes their feet, he immediately acknowledges that this promise, this hope is not for everybody that's at the table. He knew that betrayal was coming. He knows our hearts. He, He knows the intentions. He knows the motives. And he knows what our decisions are going to be. There are many examples in scripture of betrayal. Maybe you can think of a few, but let me just sort of list a a few examples. Joseph is probably one of the big ones that we think about. He was betrayed by his brothers, Genesis chapter 37. He was ultimately falsely accused. He was betrayed by his friends. He was betrayed by uh, his employer's wife. Uh, He dealt with betrayal all throughout his life. Samson was betrayed by Delilah in Judges chapter 16. Jeremiah was betrayed by those who were closest to him in Jeremiah chapter 12. And David was betrayed ultimately by Saul. Uh, We see that in 1 Samuel 18. We'll talk about that a little bit even here this morning. But betrayal, unfortunately, is part of the human experience, I think. Uh, Like I said before, I think to a certain extent, we're being honest, many of us have probably experienced different levels, but we've experienced betrayal in our lives. And Jesus knew the pain of betrayal firsthand. The closer the relationship, the greater the pain of betrayal. There is something about the wrongdoing that's done to us that when it's done by somebody who is close somebody who is near, somebody that we trust, it gives a deeper and greater level of pain. You'll notice in verse 18 that he actually quotes 
uh, from the Old Testament. What he's quoting here is Psalm 41, verse 9. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This was Jesus talking about the betrayal that was about to happen. Despite the pain, there is a way that we can overcome betrayal. And this power comes directly from God and with the strength of forgiveness. Jesus did not become vindictive or angry or bitter. And yet he he responds in a very different way. And so let's look at this story together. The first thing that we're going to see right away is that uh, from a human perspective, there are some times that people do and say things, right, that are so egregious and so hurtful and, and so dishonoring to the trust that existed in that relationship that then that person can become hard to love. They can become a person that is hard to be around, somebody that is hard to talk to. It's hard to have any type of relationship because they have broken a bond that is so significant in a way that is so deep that it feels like it can't go on. In many ways, this might describe Judas. So picking up in verse 21, read along with me here in John chapter 13. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, That because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy whatever he needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So we have this really interesting picture here, right? Where the disciples are reclining at the table. So we we know from Jewish history, right, that they would have had low tables and they would have been laying at the tables. Uh, The tables would have been in like a U-shape so that the servers could come and give the food in the middle of the tables. And so they would have been laying down, resting on their elbow, probably for a lot of them their left elbow with their feet sort of going back. And so we have this kind of thing that happens where Jesus says that somebody's going to betray, and, and obviously Jesus is sitting in the middle, and so you have two people that are sitting on either side of Jesus. Really, in, in this culture, it would have been places of honor, And so on one side, you have uh, the one who is loved, right? The beloved. And and that really is the author here, John. And then you have Peter next to him, right? Peter's not next to Jesus. And that's why he had to ask John, you know, ask Jesus who this is that's going to betray them. That's going to be the betrayer. And so John is sitting there. Peter is sitting there. Jesus is talking about this idea that there is somebody who is going to betray him. And really, before we dive too deep into this, consider verse 21 here. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I think it's significant that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That while moving in sync with the will of the Father, he was troubled. Walking in the will of God will not always remove pain. Sometimes we think that if we just had enough faith or that if we were trusting God enough, that the pain would be removed and that somehow the hurt would just fade away. But it it just isn't true. And moreover, it isn't part of God's plan. So why does God allow us to face these hurts? Well, I think it's so that we can respond in a way that glorifies the Lord and honors the relationships that he esteems. But we have this betrayal that takes place. And and really here with Judas, we have somebody who is 
a destroyer. He is there to destroy what is uh, sort of moving forward, right? What the disciples are about, their mission, their purpose. And these destroyers are common, unfortunately, I think, in our lives. And so I want us to sort of look at what the face of the destroyer is. There are three important components to this, I believe. First, the face of a destroyer is someone who isolates their truth. Uh, What I mean by that is they're not taking on the counsel of others. They're not considering wise counsel from other people. There were no other disciples who knew what Jesus was talking about. Judas did this on his own. He, He wasn't talking to other people and trying to sort of see whether or not his thoughts about things were, were on track or not. The face of a tr- destroyer is somebody who isolates truth. That They remove everybody else out of the situation that disagrees with their truth so that their truth can be the truth. And it's interesting here to note that it was night, right? It's, it's night when this happens, according to verse 30. I don't think that that's just an accident. I don't even think that it's just a timeline. If you look throughout the whole book of John, John spends great detail uh, talking about the differences between light and darkness. That Jesus came as the light of the world. That he brings light into a dark world, into the darkness. And so it reveals the nature of Judas's heart. The second aspect of the face of the destroyer is somebody who avoids personal responsibility. When confronted by Jesus, Judas chose evil over good. Uh, Jesus almost gives him another opportunity, right? He, he says, what are you going to, or what you're going to do, do quickly. It, it's like there was this moment where Jesus Even though Judas was in this place of honor, Jesus was giving him an opportunity, this one last chance to reconsider. But scripture tells us that Satan had entered into him. Now, I don't know that this necessarily means that he was being possessed by the devil as much as it was that what the evil that was already in his heart, that he had already determined to do, that Satan moved him into action, that Satan was moving him to carry out his plan. And so he avoids the personal responsibility and he leaves. Well, why is that? The the third part of this is that the face of the destroyer is somebody who is self-absorbed. For Judas, it became about his own greed. It became about his own desires. This, This was not... The Messiah in his mind, this was just somebody who was a good teacher. This was, he, he had never received Jesus as the promised Messiah. This was just somebody that was there giving, you know, sort of good moral lessons. But what Judas was looking for really was a military leader that was going to have political power and was going to overthrow the Roman government. And so because it wasn't happening the way that he wanted, greed took over. He, he was self-absorbed. He, he was only looking at his own desires and his own wants in his life. Perhaps maybe the greatest way uh, that this is illustrated is uh, found in 1 Samuel with the example of Saul. If you'll remember, Saul was the king of Israel. And uh, Saul had been elected king because the people had asked for a king. But Saul was not obeying the Lord. And so he was raising up a new king, David. And Saul knew that David was a, you know, a, propon- a, a uh, opponent of his. And that he knew that David would potentially take his throne. And so we see these different things in 1 Samuel. He believed that the kingdom was his, not God's. 1 Samuel 5, 26 says, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return to you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the word, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. He, he began to see the kingdom as his, again, self-absorbed. Uh, he was jealous and insecure. You know, when David was coming alongside, despite what happened with Goliath, despite all the victories that were being given, uh, it's recorded in 1 Samuel 18, 7, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. He, he wasn't celebrating with David. He was jealous. He was insecure. He was manipulative and divisive. He lived by his own set of rules. Judas doubted the Messiahship of Jesus. 
and the kingdom that he had promised. Judas was insecure and he manipulated the events of that night to destroy Jesus. And so when we think about this, we think about this is the face of a destroyer, right? This is somebody who is part of the group, somebody that was respected as the treasurer of the group, had a place of honor at the table. And yet there is this betrayal. And what comes with betrayal is typically pain and potentially bondage. And so we want to quickly identify the pain and the bondage that comes in betrayal. Real, real quickly, when we think about pain, where does pain come from? Well, pain and betrayal can come from broken promises, right? Somebody has promised something to you. Maybe it's something that they would do. Maybe it's a promise of a covenant relationship, but there's a promise that's there. Maybe it's a broken confidence that you shared something, you were vulnerable with somebody, with somebody, and, and they, uh, you know, abuse that trust by sharing it with other people for their own benefit or for their own good. Maybe it's the pain of personal rejection. Maybe you've been rejected by somebody that you thought had your back, somebody that you thought you could depend on. Uh, maybe that pain comes from false accusations where people have said things about you that aren't true. Somebody has uh, made an accusation in order to damage your reputation. Or maybe it comes from abuse. Maybe you're the victim of abuse. And, and these are pains that come out of betrayal. And it's pain that is very real, and it's pain that is heavy, and it's pain that we carry around with us day after day, month after month, year after year. And when these offenses linger in our hearts, then we cannot confine it. It taints how we see things, and it develops within us characteristics of bondage to that offense. We become bonded to that offense. It becomes almost part of our identity. What are these aspects of bondage? Let me just go through a few of these so that we can kind of understand the context of what's going on here. A normal sort of human response to things is that we become enslaved to our own pain. We're cut off by bitterness. Bitter feelings can form this thick wall that's designed to ultimately really protect our own resentment. We begin to allow bitterness to come around us in a way so that it protects our pain, so that it protects our resentment. We're blind to personal faults. We may choose to see the wrongdoings of others, but we become blinded to our own guilt. We sometimes become uh, sort of searching for vengeance. Our wounded pride can lead to the desire for revenge. Romans chapter 12 talks about how revenge belongs to the Lord. And so many times, you know, we want the offender to pay for their offenses. But if we act in vengeance, then we're ultimately doing the work that only God is able to do. Fourth, we can become bent on destruction there becomes in our quest for vengeance, right? We can become destroyers using manipulation or threats or accusations in an attempt to destroy the one who has offended us. And so notice this here. What happens is that the, there is somebody who is the destroyer, right? And, and they bring about this betrayal in the relationship. And then in an effort to sort of preserve our own bitterness, our own resentment, we can act in a way that seeks to destroy them and we also become destroyers. And in that way, we become given to idolatry. We may make the offense into an idol of utmost importance. In effect, painful resentment and bitterness can replace our affection and devotion to God. And so what do we do with this pain? We, we don't want to be in bondage. We don't want to be enslaved or held captive 
to our pain. But the pain is very real. And so what do we do? Well, in Saul and David's experience, we see how David responded in Psalm 55, verses 16 through 17. It says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. Now, I love this. Because God calls us, he invites us to share our complaints. He invites us to share our pain, to bring our hurts to him. And so what do we do? If we're the offender, then we must seek repentance. And if we are the ones who have been betrayed and we have an offense that we're holding against somebody else, then what do we do? Those people can be really hard to love. And yet in this passage, the remarkable example that we see is that that's exactly what Jesus chooses to do. And so there is this other aspect of it, right? Is that sometimes people can be hard to love because they've betrayed us. But then Jesus calls us to a love that is very, very hard. It's very hard to do. There's a popular R&B artist who uh, wrote a song. I'm not endorsing or condoning the song. I don't care for most of it. But part of the lyrics uh, go like this. They say, you're not easy to love. No, you're not easy to love. You're not easy to love. No. Why is everything with you so complicated? Why do you make it hard to love you? Oh, I hate it. Because if I really want to be alone, I will throw my hands up. Because baby, I tried. But everything with you is so complicated. Oh, why? Sometimes I get you, sometimes I don't understand. Sometimes I love you, sometimes I can't stand you. Sometimes I want to hug you, sometimes I want to push you away. Most times I want to kiss you, other times punch you in the face. <laughs> you ever feel that way with people? Right? Sometimes in these relationships, it can become so hard. and It's like this internal battle within ourselves that we know what we're supposed to do. We know how we're supposed to respond to people. And yet sometimes we just want to punch them in the face. And if we're being honest, that's the reality of it. And I think in a lot of ways, right, that's kind of what we would expect from Jesus. That, that in this moment of betrayal, that Jesus would stand up and say, Hey, everybody else, Judas is going to do this. We need to stop him. Or he would say, look at Judas. What a, what a jerk. You know, he's been with us all this time. He's seen all these things. He's benefited from all these miracles and all the different things that have happened. He's, he's been around for all this teaching. And, and look at how he's acting. And look at what he's doing. But that's, that's not how Jesus responds. In fact, we go into this next section, which again, I, I, bet, I bet for a lot of us is a very well-known passage, but we don't always connect it to this deep betrayal that has just taken place. Listen to the words of Jesus as he speaks here in verse 31. He says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so right away, Jesus is talking about what is about to happen. Jesus' focus is on the cross that is about to take place. His death for you and I, for everyone that was there, even for Judas. That's what his focus is on. And he says, you know, it's, you know, you're not going to be able to come with me. Uh, he's going to actually talk about that a little bit more in chapter 14. But you, you're not going to be able to come with me. So you're going you're gonna to have to trust what I'm telling you. You're, you're going to have to believe that what I'm saying is true. And you're going to have to try to live it out in your life. And as you do this, you need to know that your focus has to be on the glorification of the Son. That when we look to the cross and we look to the sacrifice that Christ made, then we can find the strength to trust the hope and the promises. Even at points and times when we feel like the presence of Jesus is absent. absent. In verse 34, it goes on, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't it interesting that this is what he says as Judas is walking out the door to betray him? As somebody that he has spent the last three years investing his life in, sharing with, having meals with, this this person that was in a place of honor at the table where he just washed his feet. And he's not mad. He's not bitter. He's saying, I got a new commandment for you. To love one another just as I have loved you. So what does this mean? What is this love that is so very difficult? What does it look like for you and I? Well, let me give you three things. One, this love calls us to suffer wrong. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, love asked, it requires of us to suffer wrong. In that way, we follow the example of Christ by submitting to God's plan and modeling his spirit of humility. You know, I think sometimes we'd say, hey, Jesus, you know, like, don't, don't go there, <laughs> right? Like, give me something easy. Tell me not to worship idols or, you know, tell me to keep the Sabbath day holy or tell me not to steal or kill. I can, I can do those things, but don't ask me to love someone who is hard to love. It's too much. But suffering wrong means that we follow the example of Christ. It also means that when we suffer wrong, that we are giving God the opportunity to demonstrate grace. That when we allow love to proceed in our action, we give this open door for the grace of God to flood in. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says that God promises that his grace is sufficient for every affliction. And then third, we display our hope in another world. When we suffer wrong, we say our hope is not in this. It is not in this relationship. It is not in this day. It is not in this pain. But it is in our eternity with Christ. Our hope for what is coming next. We rest in the assurance that justice is deferred one day and justice will be served when Jesus, the righteous judge, returns to rule. This is a love that looks very, very different. I I was sad to read one time about a study that was done by UC Berkeley. This was probably about 10 years ago. Uh, But they revealed a research project that focused on Christians and religious people and social perceptions. And this is what they learned. They learned that the unchurched see Christians as less compassionate than atheists and agnostics. They found that highly religious people are less likely to help a stranger than the less religious. But here's the part that got me. The religious or the research revealed that compassion motivated the less religious more than the religious. The research continued to show show that the public does not associate American Christians with forgiveness, mercy, compassion, and generosity. Instead, the top two marks of Christians are judgmental and unforgiving. See, there's a problem there. Because it's hard to love. And to love the way that we're called to do means that we're going to suffer wrong. But when we suffer wrong, there is another part to this. And that is that love becomes the greatest testimony to the world. I want to read, if you have your Bibles, you don't have to, you can just sit and listen. But if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 John chapter 4. I want to read this because I think it connects really well to this passage in John chapter 13. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21. So it's a chunk, but just bear with me and listen to this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so also, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If we love because he loved us, or sorry, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This passage is rich and powerful about a love that is hard, but a love that with the power of the Holy Spirit becomes a perfected love that then lives out as an example to the world around us. Loving others is preferring to live through Christ. When we understand the extravagance of God's love, we will embrace God's will and obey his choices through his power. Loving others exposes the perfect love of God. Remember how John 13 began, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does that really mean? He loved them perfectly, perfectly. Loving others is active. Love in action is demonstrated clearly by the early church. In Acts chapter 2, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Their love was an active love. Loving others is sacrificial. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a sacrificial love. I think often about uh, Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6 where we have Uh, what's commonly referred to as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's what sacrificial love is. That's what long-suffering is, right? Is when we love others the way that we would want to be loved in that situation. Sacrificial love in its truest sense would be the realization of the presence of the Lord Jesus in the midst of the church, and it would be the most powerful witness to the world and of the love of Jesus. Loving others is is ongoing. It's continual. But there's a third part to this as well. And that is this, that love, it, it requires us to suffer wrong. And it becomes this amazing testimony to the world. But ultimately then, this love opens the door to forgiveness. And I want to just, as we close, I want to think about this real quick. Because this is where it gets hard for people that have lived in betrayal. It gets hard knowing that God calls us out of this love to be willing to forgive. And so the first part of this is that there is what I like to call positional forgiveness. It is us being in a place where we stand ready to forgive. It's the preparation of our heart. It's making that initial content, con, uh, contact. It is a willingness to pursue reconciliation. God calls us 
to be in a position of forgiveness, willing to receive the other person. But there is also one-sided forgiveness, right? We can only do our parts. We can't force the other person to the table. We, in some situations, maybe the person that betrayed you is, is not even around anymore. And so we have to allow God to bring about the restoration work in our own hearts. And Satan doesn't want that to happen, does he? Right? He feeds us these lies. God doesn't care about your pain. Right? If you're hurting, you're justified in making everyone around you just as miserable. Or this lie, when I forgive, I minimize the wrong that I have suffered. They're lies from Satan. And so God has to do this work in our own hearts. He has to uproot this bitterness and put us in a place to be ready to forgive. And then there is forgiveness versus reconciliation. They're two different things. The first deals with our hearts. The second deals with our relationships. There are many situations where even in forgiveness, the nature of the relationship should not either change or maybe it should, or it should change or it should maybe even be limited or removed. But we can be open to repentance and grace, but protected from further betrayal, manipulation, and especially abuse. Because broken trust necessitates boundaries. But here's the thing is that there has to be this work in our hearts where the bitterness is uprooted. I I was sort of amazed by um, the albizia tree. Uh, It's a tree that's found in Malaysia. It's believed to be the fastest growing tree in the world. And when uh, the seeds of this tree are planted, nothing sprouts for a whole year. In fact, five years go by without anything happening. And then at the end of the fifth year, a shoot will appear. And the tree can grow 35 uh, feet in one year. Uh, They say that you can hear it cracking as it grows. And what happens, you know, so what's happening in those five years? Well, above the surface, nothing is visible. But below the surface, roots are growing hundreds of feet in all directions. The tree was gathering nutrients and strength for its eventual burst upward. Hebrews chapter 12 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. See, unforgiveness can work just like that seed. As soon as it is planted, the growth process begins. When our family members hurt us, seeds of bitterness are often planted deep in the soil of our hearts. The seed will go to work building a root system, preparing for a day in the future. Then suddenly bitterness will shoot forth in our lives, causing trouble in our lives and defiling many. We fail to recognize that some of the trouble in our lives and in our relationships is actually the fruit born of seeds of bitterness that were planted long ago. Seeds that were fed with time and neglect. Forgiveness cannot, and forgiveness and joy cannot live together in the human heart. heart unforgiveness and joy. If Satan has a way, bitterness will master us and it will spread to those around us. And so what do, what do we do? We, we have to do what Jesus did, right? We have to choose to focus on the future, not on the past. We have to choose to release and set free those that have injured us. We have to remember that in injustice, God is present. We have to respond to injustice with blessing. And we have to refuse to retaliate. Jesus modeled a very hard love to a person that was very hard to love. The interaction with and the response to Judas and his deeply personal betrayal on the part of Christ is simply amazing. God is giving us that opportunity here today. An opportunity to be free from the bitterness that enslaves us. With the example of Jesus in mind, we can release the betrayal that we've experienced We can rest in the goodness and the glory of God and respond with a supernatural love. 
If you're here today and you're carrying a load of pain, know that God is present and that he understands your pain. And the pain is real. Forgiveness is releasing the bitterness in spite of the pain. We don't deny the pain, rather forgive in the midst of pain. Many people hold on to the pain so closely because it's all that they have left of the relationship. The pain becomes the only point of connection from something that they've lost, a relationship that they're grieving. Letting go of the pain carries with it the fear of emptiness that is left in its wake. But God is not asking you to release it, but to replace it. He wants us to replace it with his love, his perfect love for you, his blessing for you, his plans for you, But in order to receive the freedom that God has for you, we have to first release the bitterness. And I know that that is a challenge for some of us. We've been holding on to it for so long. And we wrestle with it, and it becomes part of our daily life. But Jesus offers freedom in the midst of the greatest betrayal that he faced. And really the greatest betrayal that the world has ever known. Jesus calls calls us to a perfect and unconditional love. If you're feeling betrayed in one way or another, know this morning that you have a good, good father who loves you. And he loves you perfectly. And he loves you unconditionally. And he loves you wholly and completely. Regardless of whether or not maybe you have ever betrayed him. His love is eternal, and it is extravagant, and it is for you and I. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. God, we thank you for your great example of love. God, thank you that you love us completely and wholly. God, that you love us unconditionally. God, may we walk out this perfect example of love in our relationships with others. And God, for those who are here this morning or watching online that are walking in the, the pain of betrayal, God, give us grace to give our bitterness over to you. God, we release it and we receive your love and your healing into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.